This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Greetings, I am Barry. If you're searching for answers, spiritual help, clairvoyant readings, healings, crystals, books, incense, or jewellery, you need to go to Infinity, Hamilton Spiritual Centre, in the new premises at 550 Anglesey Street, or you can phone us on 838 1838. This is your link between this life and the next. Become the change the world needs today. Greetings, I am Barry. This is the voice we're in for another week. Regular listeners will know we you listen to uh, Lee Harris quite often. This is one of an interviewer. He's interviewing Dee Wallace, who's a well-known, famous actress. But also she channels. Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind-the-scenes journey of their experience. Welcome to Impact the World, and my guest this week is Dee Wallace. Many of you may know Dee for her work in acting. The movie that I first saw Dee in was E.T., and she plays Elliot's mom. But Dee is also a huge figure in the world of horror movies, uh, being in some very big horror movies. And uh, she said that she's done over 50 horror movies in her career. Not only does she have a wealth of film and television credits, she also is someone who has been channeling for several decades now and working through her teaching to bring to people principles of conscious creation in life and finding and learning about more happiness. So we have a discussion about all of those topics and also touch on some elements of Dee's personal life that both taught her and led to the work that she is doing today. So it's a great conversation and we hope you enjoy. Dee, thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to have you here in studio because we met, I think, first in 2008. And then we both... That just shocks me. I know. And then 2011, we were both speakers for the Crimson Circle. And that's when I got to sit and have dinner with you. And um, I, you've been in my life since I was about seven years old, which is probably true for everybody because... <laughs> You know, E.T. was the movie of yours that I saw first, and we know that that movie I hear that was, a lot, Lee. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and you were Elliot's mom, and so I remember as a little kid, you were a mother figure on the screen in my life. So it's, Yes, it's a I was the mother figure that everybody wanted because I never knew what was going on in my own home. <laughs> <laughs> I could get away with anything in her house. 
Well, I know that your work in teaching and bringing spirituality to people has been very, very important over the last few decades. But perhaps we could start with the acting, um, because mm -hmm. you you have so many film and television credits, it's unbelievable. And acting for, for you, I'm guessing, is a very spiritual practice. Yeah. I mean, E.T. is such a spiritual movie. Well, it's interesting. Um, I found a man named Charles Conrad who taught me a technique that nobody else was teaching back then. He taught us not to think, not to break down things, not to figure out all those things that you learn in college and other acting classes. He taught us to get our energy super, super high and throw it all onto the other person. And what that does is it opens up a channel. Well, years later, when I actually knew I was channeling and was doing it on purpose, I went, oh my gosh, I've been doing this in my acting all my career. And I, I never really knew it. But I, and that's still how I approach a role. That's how I did ET, that I just get my energy up, throw it onto whomever or whatever I'm working with and allow Mary or whoever it is to come through me. So I, I don't ever question the choice. And that, I think, is where the acting and the healing maybe departs because I know the first thing in manifestation and creating your life is you have to choose. You have to consciously choose what you want, right? So the character from the script already knows exactly what they want. So I didn't, I didn't have to explore that in my acting. Mm. And that was freedom for me. That opened up so much creativity. I, I, it was funny, this weekend um, I was back east hosting a screening of Cujo on the big screen, and I hadn't seen it on the big screen in a long time. And I thought, I didn't figure any of that stuff out. I was just there in the moment doing what Donna would do to save her kid. And I think if we all lived more like that and got out of our minds and into our hearts, life would be delivered to us more. Well, and you mentioned Cujo, and I know that you have this, you have this enormous career uh, in, in horror movies and scary movies, and you're, you know, you're, you're very beloved by, by that community for all of these roles you've done. And the parallel to me between the fact <laughs> that you're in these scary movies that 
you know, get our, our fear going. And then you're doing all this spiritual work as to how we can move beyond our fear and be more empowered. There's something beautiful about the mirroring of those two. Absolutely. I jokingly say I spend half of my time doing horror films, and half of my life uh, teaching people how to heal themselves from fear. But, you know, there isn't a monster I've ever worked opposite to that is more frightening than myself and my own fears and my, um, my lack, my former lack of being able to, there's that word again, choose, um, not to be angry, not to be in fear, you know. I mean, I come from uh, a very challenging childhood. My father was a severe alcoholic. And um, every night of my life growing up, I watched him totally nude and drunk, berating my mother, uh, emotionally abusing her. I never saw him hit her. But the abuse, and I was trying to take care of my little brother and keep my dad off my mom. And finally, my mom couldn't take it anymore, and she moved us uh, out of the house. And two months later, he shot himself in the head behind a bar. So, and you know, I have, that's one of my stories. But if I keep telling my story... And uh, telling everybody, look at what a victim I am, where I came from. This is why I can't, and this is why I can't. And you didn't have that happen to you. Well, then I never create my life the way I want it to be. If we keep telling our stories, I love Dana Wiles' quote. She says, the only thing wrong with your story is that you keep telling it. And it's true because... That defines who you are. That This is who I am. I am either Dee Wallace, who was a victim of my childhood, or I am Dee Wallace, who is a victor over my childhood. And I can keep blaming my mom and dad. They're not even here anymore. What are they going to do? You know, it's my responsibility now to move past that. Yeah, and it's interesting hearing you frame that in your in your early life because one of the things that I'm struck by with you and your life is in a career, and we're just talking about the acting here for a second, in a career where very few people are able to make an acting career work, you have just had this incredible run. So at what point did your ability to know that we consciously create because I'm guessing that you didn't have your spiritual awakening in your in your very very early years or was that there for you as you started to I build the I was channeling act? yeah really early in life but every kid does you know they're imaginary friends and uh I had a friend adopt a little boy and he was four years old and they were driving and they came to a stop sign, and there was a big semi-truck across the street, and he went, look at that truck, Mommy. That's how I died last time. Mm 
and proceeded to tell her, you know, he was in the car with his other mommy. You know, kids always channel until we tell them it's not okay, they don't know, and it's just pretend, right? So when I was eight years old, um, I was very close to my grandmother because my mom had to work all the time. And uh, I woke up at around 3 a.m. and I heard this voice, heard this voice say, something's wrong at Grandma's house. Well, I got up and I went and woke my mom up. My poor mom, she had to go to work at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I said, Mommy, something's wrong at Grandma's house. And God love her. She didn't say, oh, shut up and go back to bed. She got up and we called Grandma and nobody answered. So at 3 a.m., we drove over to Grandma's house. And the cat had gotten up on the stove and turned all the burners on. But they hadn't lit, so it was filling up with gas. I don't know if she would have been okay in the morning, but the point is there was something wrong at Grandma's house, right? Um, Used to, then we moved in with Grandma, and she lived on the top floor, she and Grandpa, and we lived on the bottom floor. And there were these long stairs up to my bedroom on the sleeping porch upstairs. And I would sit there to talk on the phone, you know, like teenagers do. And I would hear this voice saying, help me. Will you help me? Now, it's very interesting because when I hear these voices, I don't get afraid. In the movies, I would get afraid. That's the difference. When, you, when it's real, it's peaceful. And I, I said, well, why don't you just leave and then you won't be afraid? You can leave, you know. You can, you can, I think at the time I said, you can go up to heaven. You can leave. And, and then I never heard the voice again. After my dad's suicide... I was laying in my room, and there were windows on all sides, and I was laying on my side, and there's a mirror over here, and there was this really bright light, and I thought, well, didn't I pull the curtains down or something, and all the curtains were down, and I looked back, and the light went to the middle of the room, and I heard, it's not your fault. You couldn't have done anything to stop me or help me. Your job is to move forward with your life and go be happy. Go be happy, Didi, which is what they called me. Go be happy. That's your job. And then the light went back to the mirror and disappeared. So I had a lot of experiences when I was younger. I just... I just didn't know you could expand them. And then I met my husband, and he got me involved in a a philosophy called conceptology. And we would go down and study it um, down near Disneyland uh, once or twice a month. And it just made so much sense to me. And then 
I was led to science of mind, which is your thoughts create your life. And then I, my husband died and I dropped to my knees and I said to God, I don't want to be pissed off and I don't want to be a victim. I want a way we can heal ourselves. And, you know, ask and it's given to you. So I got my message like that. Use the light within you to heal yourself. And I've been expanding on understanding that ever since. Wow. And how old were you at that point? I was, um, when Chris died, I was about 40. Right. So, you know, in a way that that marked... No, I was... Sorry, 46. 46. Because Gabrielle was just before her seventh birthday. Your daughter, right. So that that kind of marked, in a way, the beginning of this chapter of your life that I met you in, where you are a teacher, a speaker, and a spiritual leader for others, as well as your own healing journey. So how long did it take for your own personal healing journey to start to become something that you shared with others in a more overt way? Like immediately, because I had a, an acting studio that I'd started. And after I dropped to my knees and said that, I would go in and people would start scenes and I would start getting messages where their blocks were. Um, which is kind of my specialty now when I do private sessions. I'm able to tell you where your blocks are and what limiting beliefs are lurking there that are holding you back. I mean, I would have six auditors, Lee, and at the end of the class, three of them would go, I will do anything to study with you, anything. And the other three would go, hey, nice, thanks, bye. (laughs) Because... It got kind of freaky for people, but people's, my students' lives started to change, and then their parents worked with me, and then their families and their friends, and here I am, you know, 30-some years later working with people all over the world. It's amazing, and it's funny because as a kid, when I did, I, I ended up going to drama school in England, but I didn't stay trying to be in the profession for more than a few years because everything else consumed me and I got taken elsewhere. But I always used to feel like when I look back at my life, the all the theater I did, all the drama classes, all the workshops, they were my first self-growth workshops. Yes. They just weren't under that heading. So I love that you were able to really run with that and kind of empower that into your acting studio. Yeah, 18 years later, um, it was one of the largest acting studios in L.A., And but I... I couldn't sell it because everybody wanted the healing stuff along with the acting stuff. And nobody else could do it. Nobody else knew how to do that. Was it because you you were still very active as an actor all all of the time. So I've, I've wondered about that for you. Have you found when you're working on TV or film sets, the people who know about the spiritual side of you, do they come come up like oh, to talk it's about crazy? Yeah, I'll bet. It's crazy who you attract without ever really holding that intention. You know? Um somehow it'll come up in the conversation, like the Hallmark film, Christmas film that I have 
coming out in, in uh, soon in November. Um, so it will be out by the time this interview yes, is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a whole healing session with like seven of the people on the crew and the cast that found out about my work and they were all into bettering themselves and some kind of self-help thing. And so we had a little uh, healing circle for two hours, which was great. I mean, I could do my healing work 24-7. I couldn't do my acting work 24-7. Because the energy is the, the energy current that runs through you is different? Um, I don't think I ever had that question before. And what I'm feeling is the highest answer is that it's the interaction. I, I'm interacting with another actor, but I'm interacting in an emotional way as opposed to a detached way through the channel. Yeah. And it's, it's very different. Well, you also, I guess, with TV movies, you also have the parameters of the script, the story. Those things are set, and your job is to bring that infuse that with life force and yes. a new energy but there's a parameter whereas with the healing work I guess the parameter is being created every moment through right. sh you know your your own way of being the conduit well and in, in enacting I have to bring all of me forward in the healing I get out of the way and just let the channel take over it's pure faith and trust and freedom.
Smiling Soul from Bjorn Meyer. So we were talking earlier that by the time this airs, your book Born will have just come out. Tell us what you can about Born and why you created it. I created it because I work with thousands of people and they all think it's hard, Lee. They all think creating is hard. They think there's a struggle in it. They think they have to study for a long time to do it. And it's just not true. There are a very few principles that you need to get in place. And then ask the universe to partner with you. The the most important thing is to love everything you want. And most of us are taught the opposite. We're taught to judge what we don't have and be pissed off or um, feel like a victim or angry that we don't have it or depressed that we don't have it. And none of that's going to create it for you. I mean, when you walk into a room full of people, who do you gravitate to? The people who are doing this or the people who are doing this? Totally. Right? Well, the universe is the same way. It's a big electromagnetic field that we plug into. And uh, it says very clearly in the I Am Discourses, God, or if that word is not your word, the force, the creative force, the energy, whatever your term is, it doesn't matter, will not and cannot intercede on your behalf without your clear direction. Now, if you put that together with what brain science says, which is your brain focuses on whatever statements you make. So if you tell a little three-year-old, don't touch the TV, he'll go, and he'll go right over and touch that TV because his brain doesn't hear don't. His brain sees him touching the TV. I... I can have people come up to me when I'm speaking and um, I'll go, okay, what do you want? I don't want to have to worry about money. What do you want? I I don't want to have to worry about money all the time. Okay, good. What do you want? This will go on for 20 minutes until they get so frustrated with me they would... I want more money. And I go, great. Now we can start because now you finally told me what you want. But we're not taught that. We're taught when we're little, I want a doll. Don't ask for what you want. You'll be lucky to get whatever, you know. I want that toy that Johnny has. No, Johnny has it. You, you let him have your toy, right? We're taught not to be self-creators and that, well, God will love you more. 
if you're humble and you don't have very much. That was my big message. You, you shouldn't have more than you need, Didi. You know, and um, I remember, I, I even remember the intonation, they're the rich people, we're the good people. So cut to me in ET, and I'm catapulted to stardom and getting all these financial offers. And my little girl inside is going, no, don't do that. God won't like you. You won't be humble anymore. You're making too much money, Deanna. But we don't understand that all that's going on within us. Do you know that how you see yourself in the world and your self-esteem and how you're accepted in the world is totally complete in your brain by eight years old? Eight years old. So we're not running the show. Our kids inside are running the show. And that's why I tell everybody, whatever subject you're working on, make a list of everything that you were verbally taught and what was modeled in front of you. Because you will find every block that's in your way. It's funny, I'd heard that about eight years old many years ago, but you just reminded me because that was the year really in my life when all my problems started to surface like mm-hmm. eight years old onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, problems that I that I kind of ran for, I don't know, nine years and started to break some of the patterns and yeah, started the, the, heel, the heel journey, which was long around the age of 16, 17. But it's interesting to, to piece yep. that thread together that for me, Eight years old was where certain behaviors started that were, were problematic. Well, and then what happens, you see, is that's a belief. We know from the good book, as you believe, it's going to be delivered to you, baby, right? So if you want to change your life, you have to change your belief systems. What happens is we create all these belief systems up to eight years old, and then we start building on those beliefs. So by the time we're 20, 30, 40, we have a lifetime which proves our beliefs to us. But we have created that proof because we have that belief system. I mean, for example, when I was growing up, my grandfather had been terribly successful in business had a stroke. So my vision of him was that he was helpless and my grandmother had to take care of him all the time. My father was an alcoholic. My mother had to take care of him all the time. She had to make the living. So Four of my husbands who had to take care of them. Right. Until I went, holy heck, I'm, I'm living my mother's story. I'm not living mine. Well, and you, you know, you just talked about the success moment that you had around ET and, and, and how that triggered for you 
this inability to let yourself receive some of the things that were coming your way. That must have been a very strange time because I can't imagine that you anticipated that that film was going to do what it did and cause such a a shift in in culture and also in in your life. Or or did you have a sense that 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 the the movie that you were working on had something that was going to explode like Well, I knew when I read the script, my very words to my agent when I read it was, I don't think it's going to do much for me, but I think it's going to do a lot for the world. So I, I got from Melissa Matheson's script immediately the soul of E.T. But you never know, ever, that something's going to be a hit. You just don't. And no creative person ever goes in going, oh, we're going to make it a mega million dollar blockbuster hit that's going to last forever. You just don't. You go in to do your best work and be the best creative person you can be. Um, so I, I really didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why I was pulling back from everything. Thank God I had the beginning of this work so I could begin to understand it. But you see then, that's another place that my story and my modeling started to play out so that I would have more proof, right, yes. of, of really what didn't have to be a reality in my life at all. Well, and you said you told your agent that this won't do much for me, but I can see that it's going to be good for the world. What was it? What what made you feel that about it? Do you mean? Because I knew the star was E.T. Ah, I see. Okay. I knew it was all about him. And I was right. But I haven't seen him in many other movies since. (laughs) And Dee, you've got got lots of credits. Oh, that was brilliant. So maybe... (laughs) Maybe he, you know, maybe it was just, it was a fluke for him in that movie. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's a part of our culture. Completely. Um, but, but then so, and, and, and again, I mean, this is, the, this is the power of our media and when something yes. imprints. You know, when I first met you, I get all these feelings about you that are, uh, uh, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's Elliot's mom. You know, you get that. <laughs> so isn't it interesting, the power of, of that? And I, I've often wondered what it's like for people like yourself who are heavily associated with zeitgeisty moments like that, for, you know, forever. Um, but it's interesting to hear for you what the, what the challenge was afterwards. And I can also imagine at that time, because we're talking 40 years ago, I can imagine navigating Hollywood as as an actress at that time, would have, would have had all kinds of tricky elements to it as well. I think navigating life right. has a lot of tricky elements to it. But it was, what was challenging for me was I was the girl next door from Kansas. I was the simple girl next door. That's still who I am. When I started channeling, I said to the channel, why me? Why should I be given this information? And they said, because you have a way to tell it so that people can understand it. 
That was exactly what the answer was, which is, again, why I wrote Born. I made it simple. I made it fun. I made it accessible. I tell lots of stories in it from my clients and and myself. And there's really just a few things that you need to get into alignment in order to start changing your life. It's really simple, but we've been, first of all, taught that we can't do it. You know, I mean, let's just go back to our major religions and the major one being Catholicism in the beginning. We couldn't even talk to God. We had to talk to God through somebody else. You know, we didn't even have the right or the power to do that. And and I remember sitting in church when I was little, and I was seven or eight, and the minister, and this was a Methodist church, which is, which is pretty loose, you know, for as the Christian faith goes. But talking about God and how angry he was, and I turned to mom and I went, I don't think God gets angry, mommy. You know, why, why do we have to be taught to fear the very thing we want to be in partnership with. Doesn't make, never made any sense to me. Hmm. You, I know from reading a little bit about you before you came here today, Uh something, yeah, something I didn't know about you was that you got your teaching degree. Yes. uh, And that was the University of Kansas. Uh Uh-huh. I love that because you, you created the acting studio where you were a teacher and now you teach spiritually. So yeah. was that, there was something in you that knew that you wanted to go and, and gather this this learning about being a teacher or did you do that because you thought there was no other option? I did that because my mother wanted me to have something to fall back on. Of course, yeah. But isn't it interesting but how But I'm a born of, teacher. I was going to say. I'm just... A born. I also had my own dance studio. I love. My heart just went. Pew. I just love the experience of seeing. I love the experience of helping others transform into their greatness, whether it's dancing or acting or or spiritual creation i it just makes me happy lee you know it makes me i'm a giver i just love to give christmas my kid laughs at me i start getting ready for christmas in january <laughs> You do? I do. Well, that's brilliant. I have a whole closet that's a Christmas closet so that I can buy special things for people when I find them. Fantastic. I love to offer specials at Christmas for my healing uh, community, for people who can't afford to do the regular ones. You know, I just... I just love to give and and isn't that what we do when we channel? 
yeah. we we give information. The information just comes through, and we go, ah, yeah. you know, yeah, and it's it a beautiful thing. Connects with other. I think I think there's something about the beauty of that connection that can come from from giving and receiving. Oh my God! Yeah. See, and I made up a word, resigive, because people think, well, I give and then I receive, but really. It happens at the same time, if you allow it. Totally. Receiving and giving is like a great hug. You both come in and you embrace each other at the same time, and you're both getting the experience of that love at the same time. That's what we're doing with the universe, is that give. And you mentioned your daughter, Gabrielle, and I know that she is also a writer. Um, yes. And Best-selling writer. Fantastic. And tell, tell me, like, what, what has, I mean, this is a big question, but perhaps Uh-oh. just the first thing that comes to you, what has parenting offered you, given you, taught you? Well, my God, where can you give more? <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> Where can you give more than when you have a child? You know, and it took me six years to get pregnant. Every specialist told me I would never have a baby. I said, thank you for sharing. God and I have a different plan. She joy- She jokes about it all the time. She said, Mom, there was eight million souls up there. And finally I said, all right. I'll go. She's not going to give up. (laughs) And we are best friends. We have been through so many tragedies together. Um, Her dad died right before she was six years old. Seven years old, sorry. Um, Her husband, we found out, had been having an affair with a 19-year-old very soon into their marriage. So she went through a nasty divorce. Uh, Later, she fell in love with this person. And, oh, I love you. You're the love of my life. You have to go travel Europe with me. Two days before they were supposed to leave, he said, you know, I'm going to go by myself. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Mom, My greatest fear is being alone. So I'm going to go alone, which, of course, was my greatest fear. (laughs) But I supported her, and then she, she journaled through her whole month's trip and the experience and how she found herself again and found her self-worth and moved back into self-love, which is the most important thing that we all can do, and wrote a book about it. And it's helping heal not only women, but women and men all over the world now. And I see a lot of my teachings because she's, I mean, she can still recite the affirmations that we said every night as she was going to bed, you know. Um, But she's taken them and put them in a very mm, 
new age, new way. That's a little more hip. Beautiful. What is the book called? Eat, Pray, Hashtag FML is the first one. And the second one is The Ridiculous Misadventures of a Single Girl. But you're going to want to read the first one first because the second one is a follow-up to everything that you want to know about from the first one. Fantastic. And so she also is, is putting books out into the world like you. When did you know that you wanted to write or that you wanted to create I was books? told. Ah, so it was a channeled thing for you. It was The channel said you have to you have to write what you know about consciously creating your life. And did you find it easy to, to kind of bring these books through? Or? I just get out of the way, Lee. Great. I get out of the way. The one that was most challenging for me was uh, Bright Light. Um, it's also one of my favorites. Um, it's really a autobiography through all the big movies and big directors that I worked with and the spiritual lessons that I learned along the way. So I had to get comfortable going into the channel and then going into my more mental place, like, gosh, what year did I do that? And, you know, factual stuff. So it was an interesting combination for me of going back and back and forth and back and forth. I have a feeling that book may have come out around the time we were both in Santa Fe. Was it a decade uh-huh, or so ago? Uh-huh. Uh, that rings a bell. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, just kind of going back to movies for a second, <clears throat> this, it's funny talking to you, and I know the term scream queen is like a... Is oh, like bring a, it on, baby. It's like a term. And bring I know it that on. I love it. You're one, of the, you're one of the best out there for that. And I also know, I was just reading the other day, Jamie Lee Curtis and this Halloween franchise that, that got incredibly resurrected like a couple of years ago. And Well, it got resurrected because Rob Zombie did his inspired remake... It wasn't a remake of Halloween. It was a Rob make, uh, which I was in, fortunately. And that kind of resurrected the interest in Halloween again. Ah, so you were in a, a prior Halloween movie because there's been quite a few, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Rob's. Okay. Rob Zombie's Halloween. Ah, uh-huh. What is it in us that loves these because I'm not really a, a horror fan, but I'm fascinated by the culture around it. And I've been reading some articles lately about Jamie talking about it. And there is such a movement around this kind of movie. What, what is it that you... It heals you. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Go Google it. Google horror is good for you. Yeah. It <clears throat> decreases anxiety... It uh, helps you learn to deal with fear in a safe place. It actually strengthens your DNA. There's all kinds of great things. I, I say jokingly, you know, I'm, I'm really in a, a public service business here doing horror films because, <laughs> you know, and, and then I go do these beautiful little Hallmark Christmas movies and movies like E.T. And, but there, everything I do 
you bring the essence of you in. And the essence of me is a teacher and a healer. I mean, I never looked at Cujo as a horror film. I looked at it as a, a tribute to every mother. You're sorry. It's a, and you wonder why I'm an actress. Uh, every mother that goes to great lengths for her kid. I had a mother like that. I had a mother that defended us and worked long hours for us. And um, that's really why I became an actress, because my mother was a beautiful actress in Kansas City in local theater. And at church, I would watch her do these half an hour readings of like the crucifixion at Easter. And people would come from four states around to watch my mother. And I can remember sitting in the pew, and I was about eight, eight years old, looking around, seeing all these grown men and women crying. And I went, oh, I want to do this. I want to move people like my mommy does, right? But I was born, I was just... I was just creating from the time I dropped out, and so was Gabby. I have a sonogram, and she's going like this in the sonogram. It's crazy. She laughs about it whenever I show her now. But, you know, you're, you absolutely have an inclination. Um, call it past lives. Call it reincarnation, whatever term it doesn't really matter. We've all lived so many different experiences, you know. Well, and creation and creativity is one of your masteries. So I love that you've created the book Born to help people with that, especially, you know, I'm always struck by how there are many different things people will say, like they'll say, we teach what we most need to know, or we teach what we most know. I mean, it depends who you talk to as to that phrase. But I do think when you have someone like yourself, who is a creative force, that's the kind of teacher you want to go to if you're having issues with creativity or, or creating in the world, because really they're, uh, the way I see it, they're the, they're the same, you know, yeah, cre creativity and creation are Absolutely. the same, same thing. So I, Absolutely. I love that you've, I love that you told me before we started talking today that you wanted born to be simple and accessible yeah. and grounded rather than complicated, which is often what we see out there in the world. So I love that. that well, was you know, we have a belief that the more complicated it is, the more important it is. Where did that come from? Do you think, you know, it's, I mean, according to the good book, God said, and let there be light. Gee, that was complicated. You know, uh, if we're made in the image and likeness of the greatest creative force, whatever your word is on there, the whole frickin' world was made in seven days. How hard could it be? But you have to know. You have to go, I want to make a tree. I want to make a river. 
You know, I want to make a mountain hill. It's so many of us keep saying what we don't want and think that we're saying what we do want. But if I said, if I said to you when you approached me to do this, I said, well, you know, I don't want to talk about blah, blah, and I don't want to look like a foolie, and I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to come to the studio. And instead of just saying, oh, my God, yes. How are we going to create this? But that's really what most of us are doing. You know, those of you that want to create a great relationship out there, most of us are going, well, I don't want a relationship like that other one. It's true. You know? Well, sure you don't, but so what do you want? If you know what you don't want, you got to take the next step and say what you do want. And then the universe can start playing with you. But the brain, your energy, and the universe doesn't know how to create I don't know. Even the computer, if you don't know what to put into it, it can't find your answer for you. Well, the universe is the same way. And I know that you you told me earlier that you're just over 600 weekly broadcasts that you do every Sunday where you teach the principles like this and many other things. Well, and people can call in, ask any question they want of the channel. So you've been doing that for 12 years now? Yep, at least. Wow. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. Thank and you. congratulations on the book. And thank you for coming in today. And it's been just delightful to hear more and learn more. But before you go, I will ask you, D. what, if anything... Do you want next? Hmm. Well, I want to do another really big movie. And I want... Now, you see, this is a great example, Lee. I want to eliminate the essential tremors that I have. So what, do, what I want is to create very steady hands. You see, my brother said to me, yeah, but it runs in the family. My grandfather had it, my mom had it, both my brothers had it. Now, with my work, I have been able to create it very minimally. I mean, you wouldn't even know that I have it. No. At all. And I know people who have it, so I, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I don't want to say working on it. I'm playing with it. I'm playing with truly knowing and oh oh this is this is a statement that came in just a few days ago when I was working on this 
I said, what is the highest claim and direction that I can make to create steadiness in my hands? And the channel said, I am divine clarity. Now, wouldn't think that would have anything to do with health, except if you're not clear that you are the creative force that creates your own health, how will you be able to create steady hands? Mm. Oh, it what when they gave it to me, I just I got it like that. Well, here's to steady hands and a, and, a, and a lovely big movie, whatever big means for, for, for this context. Yeah. And thank you for being with us today, oh, Dee. It's been so much fun. Yeah. If I leave, I will return. 
great John Denver and fly like an eagle which we all ought to aspire to do I'm afraid um, now near-death experiences we've talked about this before this is an interesting article this is your host Dorothy Shelton and this video is a summary of Anita Mojarni's incredible near-death experience in 2006 Anita's organs collapsed, and doctors told her family she was dying. Anita had end-stage cancer. She went into a coma as a result, but she maintains that her memory of those 30 hours was crystal clear, and she was aware of everything around her. Anita believes that her near-death experience helped her heal from cancer. In today's video, you're going to hear the remarkable story of Anita's NDE and the eye-opening messages she came to share from her extraordinary comeback. And one of the nurses, she came into my room and she said to me that you've really got to start using your legs and start gaining some strength. And so I was walking around the room and then I said to her, I'd like to go see myself in the mirror in the bathroom. I haven't seen myself for ages. So she led me to the bathroom, and I looked in the mirror, and I was horrified by what I saw, because I hadn't looked in the mirror for weeks and weeks. And what I saw 
I was really, really skinny. The hair had come out of my head in clumps. It looked like my eyes were popping out of my head because my cheeks were so sunk in. And I had these big bandages around my neck because of this open skin lesions. And I just looked at myself and I told the nurse to leave me for a couple of minutes and I just started crying. And I was crying because I felt that I had done this to myself. I wasn't crying because I had lost my looks or anything. I was crying because I really felt that I had done it to myself because I had spent my whole life just forsaking myself, treating myself badly, criticizing myself, judging myself, putting myself down, making myself small. And I'd spent a lifetime of doing that. And I realized that that is what had drained me to the point that I got cancer. And so I looked at myself in the mirror. I looked at my face. And I just put my hand up on the mirror. And I said to myself that day that I will never, ever let you down. I will never treat you like a doormat. I will never, ever judge you. I will never criticize you, even if you fail, even if everybody else does, even if everyone else judges you. I will never do that to you. I will treat myself as my own best friend. And from that day, I've stuck to that commitment. The last day of my life should have been February the 2nd, 2006. On that day, I went into a coma because I had end-stage cancer. I had lymphoma, which had started four years prior. And over the years, over the four years, it had progressed and it had metastasized. So I had tumors. Some of them were the size of lemons from the base of my skull, all around my neck, under my arms, through my chest, all the way down to my abdomen. On this particular morning, on February the 2nd, 2006, I didn't wake up. I was at home and I didn't wake up. And my husband got really worried. He thought, okay, this is it. These are my final hours. And so he called the doctor right away. The doctor said to rush me to the hospital. My regular doctor had called the most senior oncologist of that hospital to come down. And when he took one look at me, he said to my doctor that this is it. These are her final hours. She's not going to come out of it because her organs have now shut down. They wheeled me into the intensive care unit and they put in all these tubes just to keep me alive. There was a nutrition tube and something for my breathing and so on. And obviously all this time I was in a coma and couldn't see anything they were doing. But actually I could. I could see and feel and hear what everybody was doing. Everybody that was treating me around my body. And I could see they were having trouble finding veins. And there was one nurse saying, her veins have retracted. What are we going to do? There was another one that said, it's hopeless anyway. But I felt absolutely amazing. 
I was not in pain anymore. And I became aware that I was actually expanding away from my body. It was not like I popped out of my body, but it was more like my consciousness, my soul, whatever you want to call it. I call it the real me. The real me started to expand and I started to feel that I was something far greater than this physical body that was lying there on the hospital bed. And I could see my physical body, the whole body, lying there on the bed. And it looked so small and insignificant because I was continuing to expand. And for the first time in four years, there was no more pain. The pain was gone. And the best part was there was no more fear. I had been fighting and fighting. I was fighting the cancer. And now the fight was gone. And I felt beautiful. And then I felt what I describe as a feeling of unconditional love. I didn't have to do anything to deserve it or be worthy of this love. It was like I was loved just because I existed. And it's the first time I ever felt that in my life. The whole universe loved me. Like every soul, every essence, everything, every atom, everything in the whole universe just loved me. That's what it felt like. Now time is very different in that realm. So it's like we process time as linear over here. We recall things and we put them into a linear sequence. But in that realm, it felt like all of time was happening simultaneously, all at once. It was like I had 360 degree peripheral vision. So I could see, hear, and feel everything at once, but not just what was happening in that hospital room. It was more like wherever I put my awareness, there I was. So I then became aware of my father. My father had passed away 10 years prior to me having this experience. And there he was. I felt he was there to greet me. It felt as though my father wasn't the only person that was there, but he was the first person I recognized. And it wasn't his physical body. It was more like pure consciousness or his essence or his soul. There were other beings around, but I didn't recognize them from this life. When I was growing up, my father and I had a very turbulent relationship. I had felt that I had always disappointed my father. I'd never been good enough. I'd never, ever met his expectations. I'd let him down. I disappointed him. I brought him shame. I brought shame in our culture. When I encountered my father in the other realm, however, all I felt from him and for him was pure unconditional love. There was no judgment. My feelings of guilt had gone when I just felt that pure, unconditional love. And I understood that he had been with me throughout my illness. He had been with me even at my wedding to Danny. He had been with my whole family all this time. I realized that there was nothing to forgive. The way we communicate in the other realm is not the same as we communicate over here. 
we leave behind our physical bodies, our vocal cords. So when we communicate, it's like from one pure consciousness to another. And it's like our pure consciousness just merges. And I knew everything that my father wanted me to know. There's no room for miscommunication. Because what I learned was that when we cross over, we don't just leave behind our physical bodies. We leave behind our culture, our race, our gender, our religion, our beliefs, and all the layers and layers of beliefs and things that we've accumulated over this lifetime. We leave it all behind. Death transcends all of that. What crosses over isn't something that's less or smaller. It's actually something that's far, far greater. And that's when I realized that my father, when he had crossed over, he had lost all his cultural beliefs. And so all he felt for me was pure, unconditional love. I had felt guilty about running away from the arranged marriage. I had felt really guilty, and I had held that with me for all the years until I had my NDE. But in the NDE, in the clarity, I realized that what I had done was the best thing that I could do. It was the perfect thing because it was even what that family needed to be done to them. It was what my culture needed as well so that people could understand more about what arranged marriages do to us. I only saw it when I was in that near-death experience state how everything we do is part of this greater tapestry and when you can see the whole picture, it's just so perfect. And so that's why there's no judgment for things that we seemingly do wrong. I understood how it was that every choice and every decision in my life caused me to be in that hospital bed, dying in that moment. I realized when I was in the other realm, that every choice I had made in my life, I had made from a place of fear. I realized that I had spent a lifetime not loving myself. I had spent a lifetime forsaking myself, making myself small, treating myself like a doormat. When I was in that realm, I realized that the biggest lesson was that I had to love myself like my life depends on it. Because it does. Because when I was in that realm, I realized that God is not a being that is separate from me. God is within me. God is within you. God is the infinite universe, the infinite light that shines out from behind your eyes. And when I realized I am an expression of God and a piece of God, an expression, a facet of God that is expressing itself through me. How can I not love me? How can I not love you? How can you not love you? Because to not love yourself means to deny the part of God that has chosen to express itself as you. And through you, that's what we deny when we don't love ourselves.
And only when we love ourselves and see God within ourselves are we truly able to see God within other people. Because one of the biggest burning questions that I came back with was that, why did I have to die to find this out? What if I didn't come back? What a waste of a life to find this out after we die. And I realized that we are actually born knowing this. We're born knowing the love that we are. We're born knowing that we are an expression of God, a facet of God here to express ourselves. We're born knowing that life happens through us, not to us. We're not victims of life situation. We're here to experience, experience life, experience life happening through us. We're born knowing this, but we forget. We forget a lot of it is due to our conditioning, to our cultures, to our education, and so on. I've realized that one of the most important things in life is to find your joy and do what you love because life is just for living and for laughing and not a lot more, really not a lot more than that. My brother was flying over to come and see me in Hong Kong as soon as he heard that I was in a coma. So he only heard after I went into the coma, as soon as he heard he was frantically trying to get on a plane to come and see me in Hong Kong. I was aware that he was on the plane. I actually saw him on the plane and I was aware that I had to stay alive at least until he got to see me because I knew he'd be distraught if he missed me. And I also became aware of other lifetimes that I've had with my brother, other lifetimes that I've had with my husband, Danny. I was aware that the whole time he was sitting there by my bedside, he didn't leave during the whole time. And I was aware that his purpose and mine was actually linked in this life. I reached a point where I realized that I couldn't go any further if I wanted to still turn back. But no part of me wanted to turn back. My father started to tell me that I needed to go back because it wasn't my time. I needed to go back because there were some gifts that I still had on this side, which I had not yet experienced. I knew that now that I knew this, if I chose to go back into my physical body, my body would heal very, very quickly. And I felt as though it was in that moment that my father said to me, now that you know the truth, go back and live your life fearlessly. And it was in those moments that I started to wake up from the coma. I'd been in the coma for about a day and a half, about 36 hours. And my brother was there. He just got off the plane. My husband was there. My mother was there. And they were excited that I'd come out of the coma. And I was very, very groggy. It was like I had one foot in each side. And I kept saying, Dad is here. Dad's here with us. Dad told me to come back. Dad said I was going to be okay. Loving yourself really means being your best friend, even when you've lost everything. It really means that even if you failed, even if you're completely downtrodden, even if, even if you're being criticized by everyone else, 
It's the commitment that you will stick by you, that you will still always be your own best friend. That's what I've learned. 100,000 angels from Bliss. So we'll see you all next year, Fox. I am Barry. It's been the voice within. Kakite. Shalom. Namaste. Masalam. May our God go with you.
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.